Welcome to the Brevard Christian Church Podcast. We hope to encourage you with sermons, stories, and interviews that will challenge you to grow in your faith. Enjoy. Would you uh, pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can call you our Father and at the same time realize that you are so holy, so transcendent, so above us. You spoke everything that exists into existence. We can't even begin to stretch our minds just how awesome and great and powerful you are and yet you love us in such a way that baffles us too. But God, because of that, we want to offer our lives and everything we do, and even better, we want to get better for you, God. My request this morning is as we look to your word, not only will we better understand what your will is for us, but that you would give us the wisdom to see how to live that out in a way that would be pleasing to you. That's my prayer, in Jesus' name. If you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do that. We're going to, in the book of Romans, we've been in the book of Romans for uh, several weeks now. We're in a passage in Romans chapter 12, the last half of the 12th chapter, and we're going to go on into the 13th chapter. I think I've said this before, but uh, uh, just a reminder, when the scripture was originally written, there were no verse and chapter divisions, and usually it serves us well. It really helps finding places in the Bible since it's broken up that way, but sometimes the chapter divisions don't really fit what's really going on, and I I hope you're able to see that today as we go through some of these verses. Another reason you might want to open up your own Bible or pull it up in your phone or whatever is I'm only going to read just a few selected verses uh, because I I just don't have time to get into all of it, but I do want you to catch the context here. Romans chapter 12, we're going to be picking up in the middle of the chapter where Seth left off last week, and we're going to go on into the 13th chapter. There's a... um, picture of a man, I don't know if you recognize this guy or not, his name's Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, famous uh, psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps in World War II. And as a psychiatrist, one of the things that he was concerned uh, 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 to do during his time in the concentration camp was observe people and how they handled, how, how they handled some of the worst atrocities in, in recent history. I've, I've got to admit to you, I'm going to talk about him for just a minute. And if, if this bothers you too much, just hang in there with me for a minute or two and it'll be over. But every time I think of things like this and I'm reading about it, I was just reading it, about it again recently. If you're like me, I get visual images. You know, when I was in school, they had us watch these movies, this footage that they took when the Allied forces came in and set all the people free who had survived the concentration camp because we knew it was bad. We had no idea it was that bad. And immediately I get these images of people that look like skeletons with skin. I have no idea how they were able to, to live. And I, I, I don't want to be too graphic, but that's, that's the setting that he endured. And one of the things that was, was uh, very interesting to him and he wanted to try to draw some conclusions concerning is the fact that Regardless of physical health, it seemed as though, because everybody, I mean, by the time you've spent much time in the concentration camp, you're all in awful condition. But regardless of all that, some people seem to have a will 
There seemed to be something on the inside mentally that kept some people going and enabled them to survive the concentration camp experience where others, others didn't. And, and I don't mean to oversimplify this, but, but in just a sentence or two, what he discovered was this. If you really had something that sustained you that was bigger than and beyond the concentration camp, then you were able to survive and get through the concentration camp. For example, if, if your family, and I'm, I'm not just talking about having a family that loves you and I want to get back to my family and I think about my family and that's what enables me to survive. No, it had to be bigger than that. It had to be the kind of relationship where you really felt like my family's not going to survive if I'm not there to take care of them. They're dependent on me. They need me and I need them. If you had that kind of a, of a constant reminder tape playing in your mind, those are the kind of people who were able to make it. He talked about a scientist who, who felt like the work that he was doing would better humanity, and nobody else was doing it. He really needed to get back to his work and finish his, his scientific endeavors, and so he survived. Do you, do you get this idea? Something that would, I, I mean, awful situation, but something in your mind that was bigger than that situation, right? Now, now having said that, having said that, Frankel describes one of the scenes that he saw one day. He describes a lot of things that happened in the concentration camp. But there was, a, there was uh, one of the prisoners in the concentration camp was dying. And I'm, I'm guessing everybody's dying in the concentration camp. But, but evidently, you've been there long enough, you can tell who's going to breathe their last in, in the next few breaths, right? And so some of the other prisoners are hovering around. And this guy breathes a couple more, and then he breathes his last. He, he breathed his last breath, but his eyes were still open. And Frankel describes how these other prisoners in their terrible physical condition yet had enough strength to grab that body and pull it up on the porch, its head bouncing off the steps as they made it up there. And like, like a swarm of buzzards, over a dead carcass, they're picking over the body. Why? Because the shoelaces are better than my shoelaces. Oh, here's a button. They're, they're picking over that body in a concentration camp. Now, I, I, I have no idea what was going through their minds. But as I'm reading this story, I'm, I'll be real honest with you. As I'm reading this story, I'm thinking to myself, one of the first thoughts that come to my mind is, I wonder if God thinks that way about us when we fight over junk here in this life. You have got to be kidding me. Here, here's, here's the mental exercise, though, I want you to do with me. In that very situation, if it were possible to talk to those people who are in that concentration camp doing that very thing, right? And, and, and again, I, there's so much to this story I don't know anything about. But if we're able to talk to those people and convince them, not, not, just, not just give them something to hope for, but if we had proof that in two more days the Allied forces would be there, in two more days the concentration camp would be over, and we had evidence for that and we were able to show it to those, to those prisoners there, do you think, I gotta think, I gotta hope, it would make a dramatic difference in how they treated the dead, how they treated the last two days of their existence. Why? Because it's not all about how do you get by in the concentration camp. You lift your vision and you realize there's more to it than this. Why am I bringing this up? Because we're in a section of Romans that, that reminds us, 
It reminds us of what the Bible does on so many different occasions, that there's more to our existence than right here. In fact, can I, can I just say it this way? Would you go along with me? Folks, spiritually speaking, from eternity's perspective, we got two more days. In two more days, everything's going to be different for forever. And I don't know, maybe 450,000 years from now, when we look back on this experience, we're going to say, I can't believe I did that. Why? Because it's nothing compared to what's coming. You know, back in Romans, the 8th chapter, it says, I consider our present suffering. And by the way, who's writing this? It's the Apostle Paul. You know what the Apostle Paul went through? He went through floggings. He went through beatings. The guy was stoned with real rocks, that kind of stoning, right? The guy, the guy, the guy endured so much hardship. And he says in chapter 8, I consider the present suffering. And this guy went through it. Nothing to be compared to the glory that's waiting for us. Two more days. Man, it ought to make a difference. In this passage, there are so many things it talks about that we Christians do that normal people just don't do because we have this different perspective. And here's the way I kind of want to break it down. It's, it's way, the way we focus on what we do more than what we feel. Man, that's so important because sometimes your feelings work for you. Sometimes they work against you. But as Christians, we focus more on what we do than what we feel. And we also focus more on others than we focus on ourselves. Let's start this. Romans chapter 12. I want to start here in verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I, in my estimation, I think this is just a classic verse. And I think it represents our time because reading a verse like this, I really think most modern Western people misunderstand this verse. And, and I want to, I'm not going to spend this much time on every single verse, but I really want to try to explain this. The Greek, the Greek, uh, classical Greek language, this is Koine Greek, but they still had four words for love. Well, we only have one word for love, right? You know, if, if those of you who know me, if I, if you heard me say that I love my wife, I hope you know that I really mean that, but you might hear me say that I love popcorn too. And I mean to totally different things, but you know what? We're limited with our language. The Greeks had so much more variety with their language, and this is the most used word, agape. You've probably heard it before. It's the most used word in the New Testament for love. But it is different from all the other forms of love in that it does not require something on the other party's behalf. In other words, it's not I love you because, or I love you if, or I love you when. This is a commitment kind of love. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say this, but I don't have time to explain it, so maybe, maybe later we'll talk about this. This is not an unconditional love either. So many times people talk about it as being an unconditional love. I want to give you what I think is the best definition for this word agape, and that is this. It is a commitment to do what is best for the person that you're focused on. A commitment to do what is best. You know what that means? That means if I am committed to do something that is really beneficial and going to be helpful, that doesn't mean they're always going to like it. It also doesn't mean that I'm going to like it. I might be put in a situation where I really don't want to do this, but you know what? This is the best thing for that person. And since I am committed to them, one of the things I hope you're hearing here, and, and, and again, I don't want to overplay this because there are emotions involved in this. But the emphasis here is on your commitment and on what you do. 
Because at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, think about this. If you're, if you're in a difficult situation, maybe, maybe you don't have to think very hard on this because you've been going through some difficult things in your life recently. And you've got different people that are close to you. If somebody says to you, oh man, I, you know, I really feel for you. Man, uh, I, I'm going to be there for you. And they say all sorts of things that just gush with emotion, right? But they never show up and they never do a thing. And you got another friend that's really soft-spoken, but you know what? They're there and they're doing something. Which one has really loved you? Well, in the biblical sense, it's the one who did something, right? Okay, okay. Love, this idea of commitment to do what's best for the other person, must be sincere. This word literally means without a mask. In other words, it's the idea, this is who I really am. I may not always feel it. In fact, sometimes my heart may be into it. Sometimes it's not. But I am really committed to this. Committed to what? Committed to do what is best for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this context. He says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The reason I think this verse is so often misunderstood is we go right back to these feeling kind of words, right? Aren't we talking about hate? And aren't we talking about clinging as far as, as really liking or holding on to? Well, no, not in the sense of this verse. You know what this verse is really talking about? This verse is talking about, yes, you should have appropriate emotions and, and, and sub-point here, it's okay to be mad about some things. And when Jesus was upset about some things, there were times when he didn't just, man, that's wrong. <laughs> He actually made a whip, and he went in and turned tables over, and he drove it. He did something about it, right? When he cleansed the temple on more than one occasion, right? But you might get the idea that this is really focusing on our emotions here. In reality, that's not what this verse is really focusing on. Yes, there are appropriate emotions. Some of them good, some of them bad. But the main point of this verse is this. As a Christian, as God's person in this world, I cannot sit on the sidelines and just watch it happen. I must get involved. I must do something if I'm really committed to do what other people is best for my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, there's a guy, he has a show on a, a channel on YouTube. His, his name's Beckett Cook. This last month, he had, he had a guest on, uh, Dr. Thaddeus Williams, and they were discussing, uh, Professor Williams presented what he considered the scandalous seven Seven men over the last couple generations who have literally reshaped modern Western culture in this one regard. I mean, there are a lot of people who've had a lot of influence, but these guys have had a huge impact so that today we can't read a verse like this and think about it the way that it was originally written. Why? Because modern Western culture, first time in the history of the world, First culture to ever do this puts emotions and feelings over reality. Really don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but, but I tell you what, throughout the history of the world and other cultures, when you really feel something, that's great, but when it runs into reality and you realize, you know what, it's never going to happen, then what do you do? I guess I better work on the way I feel. We are the first culture that comes along when you're four foot two and you weigh 300 pounds and you just know you can make it in the NBA. There's a certain reality <laughs> that says maybe, just maybe that's not going to happen, <laughs> right? 
Oh, I'm taking too much time on this. The emphasis here, though, is on what we're doing. Let's go ahead and skip down to the next verse here. He says, be devoted to one another in love, the same Oh, by the way, this is the same word for love. This is a combination word up here, which takes the two other Greek words for love, which talk about love in a family relationship and love in close friendships. Because if I'm really committed to my brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the things I ought to want to do is get closer to them, develop stronger relationships with them. Honor one another above yourself. So I'm focused on what I'm doing at the end of the day, which, by the way, to translate this into everyday life, when you get down to the end of your day, I, I, I don't know if you have your devotions in the morning or in the evening, or maybe both. If you do, that, that's wonderful. But during your prayer time, maybe one of the times in self-reflection, maybe one of the good things to ask yourself is not so much, how do I feel about myself today? Man, that felt like a good day. Instead of focusing on things like that, how about focusing on what did I actually do today? What can I point to that actually made a difference? Because you know, sometimes you don't feel very good about the day, but you did exactly what God wanted you to do that day. So focusing on, on what we do. And then this second perspective here that we're going to see throughout this passage is this idea of honoring one another above yourselves. Okay, over in Philippians, the second chapter, it gives us the example of Jesus who put others in front of himself, and he actually talks about we ought to have this attitude of humility. And I really want us to... Again, focus on this just a little bit because too many times we think of the idea, and maybe you don't, but a lot of people think of the idea of humility as running yourself down. Biblically speaking, that's not humility at all. Humility is not saying, oh, I can't do that. And I, oh, man, I can't do that. No, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. I'm going to say that one more time. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, you might know you have certain talents and abilities and, and, and you can do certain things and you know certain things. It's not running yourself down. It's just that's not what you focus on. When, when you're dealing with other people, you don't put a spotlight on yourself. You don't talk about your abilities. You look at other people and you see what the situation calls for and you do whatever you, back to the doing, right? You do whatever you can, whatever is best for that person to display your love. So it's focused on the doing and it's also focused on other people. It's getting the focus off of ourselves. You know, Jesus is the one who said, the very person who tries to save their life, what happens? They lose it. The person who's willing to lose their life for the sake of the gospel, they're the person who finds it. This, this goes right in line. I don't know how many of you read the latest books and things like that, but you know there was another study done. I've seen this, I don't know how many times, but there's another study done this past year on the subject of happiness. And one of these guys, they presented him anyway in the interview as the expert on happiness. Exact same conclusion they always come to. And the basic conclusion is this. The more you pursue happiness, the less happy you're going to be. Happiness is a byproduct. Happiness comes when you don't pursue happiness. Didn't Jesus already say that? The person who tries to live for themselves, they're, they're the person who's going to lose their life. But the person who gives up living it for themselves, they're the ones who's going to find it. You know what that means? It means, and by the way, the research proves this, you're going to find a higher level of happiness than you ever had before when you were trying to be happy. Anyway, the whole point here is what are you doing and who are you focused on? Is it other people? You skip down here to verse 12. It says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. One of the reasons I love this verse, there's so many practical, practical suggestions made throughout this passage. This idea, what do I do while I'm waiting? I think I've mentioned this name before. Her name was Betty Haywood. Betty Haywood was an elderly woman. I was a young minister at the time. This is a long time ago. 
I would go visit her every, at least a couple times a week, every Sunday. Sunday afternoon was one of the times I would go. She sat in a bed in a nursing home. She couldn't even turn herself. Somebody else had to turn her, right? And I'll be real honest with you. I looked at Betty and I thought to myself, God, why is she still here? You know, she, she, she can't do anything, I thought. But when I would visit with Betty, always try to pray with her before I go. Just part of the routine, right? Betty, can I pray with you? Read a verse in the Bible, pray with her. When she would take my hand, I'd hold her hand. She wouldn't let go. As soon as I was done praying, you know what she did? She started praying a prayer so much better than my prayer. She prayed for me. She prayed for my family. She prayed for the church. She kept going on and on. And during her prayer, I thought to myself, I think I know why she's here. You know, you don't always see what's going on, but you know what? When you don't know what to do, you can always be faithful in prayer, even when you don't know what to pray for. What is prayer? Prayer is not making a request all the time. It's not always expressing thanks. It's not always confession. Sometimes it's just talking to God. That's why we pray without ceasing. We always bring God into every circumstance, and especially in affliction. Man, we can always pray. Again, the focus here on what you're doing. Verse 14, it says, bless those who persecute you. By the way, I think this is where, this is, this is really where the test is, right? Because we know we don't live like other people live, but how do you respond when things don't go well, right? When you're mistreated in this world. Well, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not curse. In verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Again, this idea of putting other people in front of yourself, right? He says, insofar as it is possible, I mean, if it is possible, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. This is, this is like a whole chunk here where he's focusing on here's the real test. Here's, you're gonna be, here's where you can really look at your own life and tell, am I living the way God wants me to live? Am I really focusing on what I'm doing? And am I really putting other people first? Well, if you really want to test yourself, let somebody do something wrong to you. And how do you respond to this? Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Got to confess this is one of the most favorite verses we had in Bible college. Heap burning coals on their head. Probably because we didn't understand the verse. This is not talking about this is how you really get revenge on people because the whole, the whole context here is not getting revenge on people. What is this talking about? In all likelihood, what he's talking about here when he quotes this phrase about burning coals on somebody else's head, you do what you know God wants you to do, the right thing. Hey, we've already talked about that, right? I'm committed to do what's best for somebody else. I focus on what I'm doing. You do What's right, even in a difficult situation like that, and you know what? Sometimes God uses that in somebody else's conscience, in their mind, and sometimes it burns. Call it a guilty conscience. Why? Because they know I shouldn't have done something like that to that kind of person. They didn't deserve it. Sometimes God uses things like that. In fact, a lot of times God's doing things behind the scenes that you and I don't see. We just have to do the part that God wants us to do. And what's that? Forgiving, loving, being committed, putting other people in front of our own needs. 
Look what he says down here in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. Okay, this is the transition, and this is why they break it, because in the first several verses of the 13th chapter, he goes on to talk about government and God's purpose in government. And a lot of people think, well, he's on to a new subject. In reality, that's not what's happening at all. He just got through saying, listen, you don't take vengeance. Don't take matters in your own hand. You do what God wants you to do and trust God. Sometimes he works through people's conscience. Other times he works through some other things that he has established, like the government. Okay, this is not easy for me to say, so let me take a step back and try to paint a big picture here. There are four major, there's others, but there are four major areas of authority that God has established. He has established in the, in the marriage relationship, he is established in family relationships, he is established in government relationships with people, and he's established in his church. There are four major areas where God has established spheres of authority. And I want to take the example of the family because I think it best helps us understand government here. Is every family a perfect family? Hmm. Have you ever seen a perfect family? Hmm. Have you seen some parents that have really messed up? Hmm. Let's take this, take a hypothetical here. Let's say that we've got a family and we've got some parents and they've got a two-year-old and they're awful parents. What do we do? Well, we usually try to encourage, help, do whatever we can to help them be better parents, right? But let's say it just gets worse. Do we say they're so bad that it's detrimental to the child? So here's what we're going to do. Since it's so bad, we're going to take that kid and we're going to put him out on the street. Why? Because obviously the family's not working. No, we don't do that. What do we do? We have foster families, right? Sometimes adoptive families. Why? Because we understand this. We understand that even though some families mess up, children still need families, right? Do you see where I'm going with this? Are governments messed up? This is where everybody in church says, amen. Sorry. (laughs) Of course they're messed up. Do we get rid of governments? No. Why? Does God spell out what he wants governments to do? Yeah, he does. In this passage, he talks about them not carrying the sword in vain. Over in 1 Peter, the second chapter, he also talks about it. And specifically, what he talks about is to punish the evildoer, to make it possible for people to live godly lives. Not everybody's going to take advantage of that opportunity, but this creates an environment where it's possible. Why is he mentioning that here? Because this is the way that you and I can focus on doing what God wants us to do. Why? Because God's got this. And I don't have to wait till judgment day. Some things won't be dealt with till judgment day. I get that. But you know what? In the in-between time, as a Christian, one of the most appropriate things you can do, call the police. As a Christian, one of the most appropriate things we can do is support our military especially when it fights against terrorist attacks and that which is obviously evil. Why? Because God wants us to live godly lives, which look like what? I'm focused on what I'm doing and I'm thinking about others before myself. Does that make sense? Guy's name's Simmons. He he, uh, has written several books that I, I really, really like. But he used an illustration recently, and I'm sure it's not from him but originally, but uh, it's an illustration I'm going to embellish just a little bit. Let's, uh, it's back before cell phones, right? So there's no GPS. You can't look things up on your phone so easily. 
And uh, it's a person who wants to take a trip of a lifetime. And their friends got together and raised some money and, and sent them to Paris, France. Why? Because that's, for some reason, that's where they've always wanted to go. They've always wanted to go to Paris, France. And so they put them up in this nice hotel, and they're going to be there for like 10 days, all expenses paid. And this person who's thought so much, you know, it's on their bucket list. They've got, they've got this long list. They want to go to Paris, France. Why? Because they want to visit the Eiffel Tower. They want to go to the Louvre. They want to go to some restaurants that people have talked about that are just, you know, so they've got this long list of things that you can only see in Paris and only experience to that degree. And so they're, they're amped up about this, but it's before cell phones, right? And so as soon as they, they've never been there before, they've read a lot about it, but they spend the first night in the, in the hotel, then they go down to the front desk and they ask for a map because that's the only way, you can't pull it up on your phone, that's the only way you're going to get around if somebody gives you a physical map. And so they hand this person a physical map and the person behind the desk says, all you got to do is, is walk out the front door here and count about 11, 12 blocks, something like that. It's going to put you pretty much in the heart of downtown Paris, France. Then get your bearing with the map, and then you can start with your list and see some of the things that you want to see and experience some of the things you want to experience, right? So this person, all excited with map in hand, they walk out the front door, they go like 11, 12 blocks, counting all the blocks, they think they're counting all the blocks, they get to that place where it looks kind of like the center of the city, and they whip out that map and they try to get their bearing, and for the life of them, they can't get their bearing, they can't quite figure out where they are. So they thought, well, maybe I walked too far. So they walk back a couple blocks. And they still can't get their bearing, right? Well, maybe I didn't walk far enough. They walk three or four more blocks in the other direction. Then they stop and they ask some people, hey, can, can you help me out here? I just can't seem to figure things out. And the people don't really want to be bothered. And they just look at the map real quickly. And it says Paris, France. They say, yeah, that's, you'll figure it out. That's the right map. Go ahead. And so nobody's really helping you. The guy spends the entire day, doesn't see a thing on his list. He's lost. In fact, the next day, it's even worse. Still can't find a thing. You know what the problem is here? The problem's not the guy can't read a map. The problem is somebody played a trick on him. Somebody at the print shop took a map of New York City and put Paris, France right across the top of the map. So this guy's trying to figure out how to navigate Paris, France with a map of New York City. It's never going to happen. Somebody gave us the wrong map. And people are trying to live this life as though this is the only life there is. So what I feel is most important and what happens to me is bigger than anything else. And because of that, they're like concentration camp prisoners picking over a body for an extra button or a worn out shoelace. There's only two more days. Spiritually speaking, we're out of here. That ought to make all the difference. We're going to come to the tables, take little cups with bread and juice to remember the life Jesus lived and the death that he died. And we do this because he asked us when we come together to remember him. And when we remember him and what he did, one of the things that's key to what we remember is that he conquered death. Proving, proving that there's more to life than what we see in this life. Proving that there's a life beyond this life.
and hopefully encouraging us to live that way. When you look at yourself and you think about what Jesus did, would you simply ask yourself the question, I, I know it's true, so what have I done? Now, how do I feel about that? What have I done? One announcement, two thank yous. First of all, let's go with the thank yous. If you had anything to do, to help, to participate in any way yesterday with the fall festival, thank you so much. From what I understand, some 200-odd people came yesterday, and uh, most of them were about this size. Right? And so it was, it was just really, it, it, I, I got to tell you a real quick story. There was only one real dangerous thing that happened yesterday. We had this one booth with darts, right? And so, and so we, we got the biggest person on campus to oversee that. It's our children's minister, right? And so he's watching these people, these little people throw darts at balloons, and they're only a few feet away. And I come up and I'm asking the question, hey, has anybody got hurt yet? And while I'm asking the question, a little girl winds back and goes, whoo, and right into the leg of our children's minister, this, this dart is just dangling there, and his eyes go, ooh. <laughs> so no blood, everything was fine. It was a successful day. Thank you if you participated in that. Yeah, yes. No, 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 number two, is today your last day? Okay. If it wasn't, I wasn't going to thank you. But today, no. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan, stand up for a minute. You, you guys recognize Ryan. He's been working with us for several months. He has been hired full time at a sister church up in Port Orange. And so he's no longer going to be able to work with us. But he's going to be the music guy up there, right? Yeah. Music minister. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much. Okay, the, the one announcement I do need to make, though, is this. Uh, some people have been asking about our Christmas uh, push this year. We're trying to help a missionary by the name of Wing Wong from Hong Kong. And he works, he works in uh, supporting a lot of the underground churches throughout China. And uh, they're trying to raise $4,000 to put together these gift packages. And they're not just gifts, they're resources for the churches there. And so people have been asking, when do we need to get that gift in? We're trying to raise $4,000 for that missionary effort by the beginning of December so they can get it out to the churches in time for Christmas. And you know what? We have, uh, between the two campuses, we have approximately 100 families. So if each family kind of set aside a $40 gift, right, make it one of your gifts to help support the, our brothers and sisters in China, people you've never seen, but they're part of your family. So if you would uh, pray about that and do that, I think that would be great. Just remember this. It's only two more days. We're out of here. God bless you guys. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Brevard Christian Church Podcast. We pray you were encouraged and blessed. And until next time, grace and peace to you.